And so, all the signs suggest we are on the cusp of another wave of COVID. The UK government says it means furlough could be extended yet again. Better. The Tories condemn the SNP on education. Just not good enough. Labour unhappy on Scotland's health. And new COVID restrictions come into force across the country. From Caledonia Media, I'm Ashley Keenan Bryce with Scotland's favourite political show, The Week in Holyrood. This is an approach uh, that has not been easy for anybody, particularly for young people themselves. Of all of the impacts of this pandemic, I wish I could take away the impact on our young people is uh, very near, if not at the top of that list. We are all doing uh, the best we can and we will continue to engage with young people as we seek to do that. Madden va, Fiska ma. Charles is away this week. Covid restrictions are in place across Scotland from the Western Isles to the West End. Where you live really matters this week. The lowest levels are on the islands, the toughest across the central belt. And the reshaping of restrictions comes as the UK as a whole appears to be gathering in the foothills of a third wave of the pandemic. First Minister Nicola Sturgeon says the vaccination programme is the greatest aid to beating back Covid, but we must all continue to take precautions and remain sensible. I can confirm that Glasgow City will move down to level two from midnight on Friday into Saturday. This means that people in Glasgow, as has been the case in most of the rest of Scotland since mid-May, will be able to meet in homes in groups of no more than six from a maximum of three households. It also means that indoor licensed hospitality can reopen and that people can travel again between Glasgow and other parts of Scotland. A number of venues will also be permitted to reopen and outdoor adult contact sports can resume. Uh, These changes are significant. As someone who lives in Glasgow, I know they will make a huge difference to quality of life. But I ask everyone to remember that, although stable and starting to decline, cases in Glasgow do still remain high. So please continue to be cautious. In particular, and this actually applies to all of Scotland, particularly while we enjoy some better weather, although limited indoor meetings are now possible, it is still better to stay outdoors where possible. And in level two, groups of up to eight people from eight households can gather outdoors. The last eight months, and perhaps... The last couple of weeks in particular have been really tough for Glasgow, so I want to thank everyone who has cooperated with all the public health measures and stuck to all of the rules and guidelines. The sixth session of the Scottish Parliament is underway. The formal opening ceremony is likely to be held in the autumn, possibly early October. But, as you know, and as we're used to hearing over the past year or so, everything depends on the pandemic. We'll tell you more on The Week in Holyrood. Now we're going to focus on the session of questions to the First Minister this week. Once the party leaders have their exchanges, I plan to stay in the chamber to bring you special coverage of members asking questions direct to the First Minister, so stay tuned over the coming hour for that. We begin, though, with a Scottish Conservative leader, Douglas Ross. He's in self-isolation in an Edinburgh hotel at the moment, and it's there we go to join him as we begin our coverage of FMQs. Thank you, Presiding Officer. I asked the First Minister if she has full confidence in the Scottish Qualifications Authority. First Minister. Uh, yes, I do. Um, on the issue of qualifications this year, I think it is important that I and the government recognise, first of all, that this is a really anxious and a really difficult time for pupils and indeed for their parents across the country. So it's really important that we and indeed the SQA continue to listen. We are doing our utmost to deliver fair grades in what are very difficult circumstances. I will try, if uh, there are further questions on this today, to answer all of the questions uh, as clearly as possible because scrutiny and understanding is said this and I think this is an important context uh, as we go into I'm sure some of the detail of this. He said that the system that replaced exams was never going to be perfect but all of the way along no one has come up with a better way of doing it than the alternative certification model. So this is a difficult set of circumstances but the government is continuing to do all we can to support pupils in these difficult times and that approach will very much continue. Douglas Ross. So the First Minister has said she has full confidence in the Scottish Qualifications Authority. 
Well, that answer will not be shared by tens of thousands of pupils and parents across Scotland who were so badly let down by the SQA and its exam grade disaster last year. And it won't be shared by thousands more who are now facing what looks like another year of grades chaos and confusion. Last night, Leon, uh, Leon Cameron of the Glasgow Youth Council said, and I quote, we are extremely angry at the people with authority, the Scottish Government, the SQA, that they keep saying that everything is OK when it's not. They are clearly in denial over this issue. Leon continued, we have been put through hell. The First Minister said she would answer all questions clearly on this issue. But does the First Minister agree with Leon Cameron that her government and the SQA are in denial about this? First Minister. I, I don't um, agree with that, uh, but it's my duty to persuade young people and their parents across the country that while no government can take away all of the impacts of a global pandemic on our young people, this government, working with teachers, with local authorities, uh, with representatives of pupils and parents, and of course uh, with the SQE, is doing everything we can in a highly challenging set of circumstances to deliver fairness for pupils. And that work will continue. The alternative certification model uh, was developed by the National Qualifications Group that brought together uh, teacher representatives, parents and pupils. Uh, the EIS, uh, for example, and we're often, said, uh, we're often asked rightly to listen to teachers, said that this gives pupils the best opportunity to demonstrate what they have learned. Um, I will continue, and the government will continue to listen to young people. That is why, for example, we have put in place, uh, the SQA have put in place, an appeals process that gives every young person uh, a direct right of appeal, uh, free of charge. There have been some very difficult uh, decisions to take around, uh, for example, whether there is a no detriment appeal system uh, or a symmetrical appeal system. Uh, the SQA has uh, proposed a symmetrical system, which is uh, the same as in England uh, and Wales. There is also also uh, concern being raised, and we're listening very carefully to this, about the specific grounds of appeal and uh, the specific point that has been raised that there's no ground of appeal that takes account of exceptional personal circumstances. The reason for that is that we don't think uh, a young person who has suffered exceptional circumstances should have to rely on an appeal. That's why an exceptional circumstances arrangement has been built in to the model, so that if somebody has, for example, a bereavement that means they can't put forward assessment by the date in June, they have a window of time until September. So we continue to work to try to take account of the concerns and put in place the best possible arrangements in a highly imperfect set of circumstances. And I take very seriously the responsibility we have as a government to listen on an ongoing basis uh, to young people. Uh, for example, last year it uh, was unacceptable. One of the key changes this year is that grades are based on teacher judgment, not on algorithms, not in statistical models, not in historical performance of school. Teacher judgment informed uh, by the work of pupils. Uh, so these are important changes and of course we continue to work hard with everyone in the education system to make sure that concerns are properly addressed. Douglas Ross. So the First Minister won't agree. Absolutely appalling from a First Minister who is unwilling to listen to criticisms of her government and their handling of this fiasco from the young people who have been most affected. Last summer, it took a week before the SNP finally admitted that their grading system was broken and they had a U-turn. This year's children shouldn't have to go through the same issues all over again. When he is out, Somerville is in, but it's the same old shambles. This SNP government needs to learn from its mistakes, but it's determined instead just repeat them. The Scottish Children and Young People's Commissioner has said on the threat of downgrading that it is, and I quote, an unnecessary and disempowering barrier to young people. That's a concern that will be echoed in homes and classrooms right across Scotland. So is the First Minister seriously going to defend an appeals system that risks pupils receiving lower grades and demands they gamble on their future? First Minister. Well, can I say firstly, I, I think what is appalling is for Douglas Ross to mischaracterise what I've said. 
I did not say that the government's uh, job was to persuade young people that they were wrong. Uh, what I said is the government's job is to engage uh, with young people, yes, to seek to persuade that the arrangements that are in place are the right ones, but to listen as we go. So, for example, it's because we've listened to young people that there is a fundamentally different system in place this year, not one based on algorithms, but one based on teacher uh, judgment informed by the attainment and the work uh, that young people have done. I mean, the EIS, uh, again, and we're often challenged to listen more uh, to teachers. Uh, some schools make use of SQA assessment instruments, but teachers are able to draw on whatever evidence they regard as valid in determining grades. Unlike exams, the evidence does not need to be produced in a one-off event. Uh, that was uh, a critical point in the fact that the judgment of teachers can't be challenged by the SQA. Uh, on appeals, uh, giving young people the direct right of appeal uh, free of any cost was also something that was called for. On this important issue of uh, whether we have a no-detriment system uh, where appeals can uh, only be upgraded, not downgraded, or a symmetrical system, uh, I would make uh, three points on that. First Firstly, the symmetrical system is one that ensures that the attainment of pupils is central to this process. That is the fairest way of proceeding. That's not new. That has been the approach taken in past years. Uh, Douglas Ross says it's indefensible. Is it exactly the same approach that has been taken uh, by the UK government for the English uh, system? So that's uh, another important point. But this one is perhaps more important for pupils. The downgrading of grades uh, and past experience shows us this, is exceptionally rare. So if you take uh, 2019, out of over 11,000 appeals, only two of them were downgraded. In 2018, 13,000 appeals, seven were downgraded. Uh, so that is uh, an exceptional occurrence, uh, but it does ensure that we have a system that from start to finish is intended uh, to focus on the attainment, the actual attainment of pupils. And of course, uh, the appeal system uh, should only be used uh, in exceptional circumstances, not because we want to put pupils off using it, but because we want to get the grades right uh, at the first time, which is why the judgment of teachers at the centre of this is so important. Douglas Ross. This year has been difficult for everyone, but especially so for young people. And what has this government and the SQA done for them over the last 15 months? Exams replaced by exams, an appeals process late and flawed, no lessons learned, no understanding, no fairness, pupils dismayed, punished for being ambitious, teachers scunnered, their concerns ignored, parents furious with this government not listening to them. So will the First Minister do the right thing? concede she's got this badly wrong, guarantee that no pupils who appeal will be downgraded, because no matter how rare she says it is, it will be a risk for young people if they appeal. And once she does that, finally agree that no pupil who appeals will be downgraded, will she start to fix the deeper problems in Scottish education, beginning by replacing the SQA? First Minister. Well, on wider reform of education, including potential reform of the SQA. This Parliament will debate these issues uh, this afternoon. The Education Secretary will say more uh, about all of that uh, when that debate happens later today. We will continue to listen to young people, to teachers, to parents. We will continue to address concerns as far as we can. Uh, this is, uh, and I'm afraid this is inescapable, this is a highly imperfect situation because we are in the midst of a global pandemic that has made exams impossible. So we have to put in place an alternative. Uh, as Jim Thewlis, who I quoted earlier, said, no alternative is going to be perfect, but nobody has suggested a better one than this. And all of the things uh, that Douglas Ross uh, says are fundamentally wrong here um, are actually the same arrangements, by and large, uh, recognising that we've got different education systems, but by and large, exactly the same arrangements that are being put in place in England and in Wales under governments of different parties. And that reflects the fact that we're all trying to do our best for young people in very difficult circumstances. We have learned lessons from last year, uh, teacher judgment replacing the algorithm approach that was uh, fundamentally flawed 
uh, last year, recognising that there must be a much uh, more accessible appeals system, but also recognising that at the heart of that has to be the attainment of pupils. Uh, so this is an approach uh, that has not been easy for anybody, particularly for young people themselves. Of all of the impacts of this pandemic, I wish I could take away the impact on our young people is uh, very near, if not at the top of that list. We are all doing uh, the best we can and we will continue to engage with young people as we seek to do that. There's a new presiding officer in Parliament, Alison Johnston. This is her second session of FMQs and she's starting to bring her sense of how this vital session of questions should run, led by short, succinct questions and answers rather than a series of speeches. It's a marked change from the past five years under Ken McIntosh, so let's see how it progresses over the coming weeks. Labour leader Anna Sarwar has just completed his self-isolation. He's back in the chamber and we can join him now. Last week we heard damning evidence from Dominic Cummings about the UK government's response to COVID-19. He painted a picture of chaos and confusion, poor preparation and almost criminal levels of negligence that led to avoidable deaths. He outlined a series of failures, a lack of PPE, insufficient testing, COVID-positive patients being sent into care homes and inconsistent and delayed decision-making. Last week at First Minister's questions, the First Minister was rightly critical of the chaos Dominic Cummings described. But does she accept that many of the same decisions were made in Scotland by this First Minister and by the Scottish Government. First Minister. I have always accepted uh, that we made mistakes in the handling of this pandemic. I have never tried to shy away from that. And the point I was making last week was not to point the finger at any politician. It was to make the general point that one of the lessons all of us should have learned uh, all of us in decision-making positions should have learned over the past more than a year now is that uh, taking uh, quick decisions is really important. And that applies to me just as much as it applies to anyone else. Uh, we have sought to learn lessons as we go, as our understanding and knowledge about this virus has developed. And as we have candidly said that we uh, perhaps made... Uh, mistakes in how we did things in the early part of that. So I've been candid about that. There will be, as I think is right and proper, a process of full, robust scrutiny of that, both for the interests of accountability, which is really important, but also in the interests of learning lessons from the, for the future, because we need to make sure that the lessons of this pandemic are there for, hopefully, future generations to use, because hopefully none of us will have to deal with another pandemic. But all of these things are important, and I haven't and I won't shy away from the responsibility I bear for every aspect of the handling of this. Anna I welcome the First Minister's response, and I recognise what you say is about the importance of having good decisions being made really quickly and how important they are. Today we are publishing a timeline comparison which shows that at key moments and on the big decisions, the UK and Scottish governments were in lockstep. It's important to stress that none of this is the fault of our hardworking NHS and care staff. What we are questioning is the decision-making of the Scottish Government. So let's look at some of those specific decisions. In early March, both governments were talking of a strategy of herd immunity. On March the 12th, 47,000 fans attended a European football match in Glasgow. That same day, the Scottish Government said that stopping mass gatherings was not the best way to contain the virus. They were made illegal 11 days later by both governments. Untested and COVID-positive patients were being sent into care homes. The UK Government announced routine testing on the 15th of April. The Scottish Government waited until the 21st of April. The result, one in 10 of our care home residents in Scotland losing their lives to COVID. That is not a protective ring. 3,774 deaths, a third of the total. So does the First Minister accept that these were decisions made in Scotland by this First Minister and by the Scottish Government? First Minister. Well, I'm, I'm glad uh, for, for him that Anna Sarwar has got the time to, to do timelines. There's nothing he's just told me there that I don't know. Um, and there's nothing that I've sought to shy away from. I, I lived through that period as the, the, the lead decision-maker in the Scottish Government. I take responsibility for all of the decisions. I've never tried to shy away with it, from it. I'll live with the consequences of those decisions for as long uh, as I live. And those decisions will be subject to serious scrutiny. That is right and proper. Uh, we sought all along uh, to do the right things based on the knowledge 
and the understanding we had uh, in uh, light of developing knowledge, some of this, these things, if we could turn the clock back, we would do differently. Um, and in addition to that, as I have said all along, we will have made straightforward mistakes and I will regret any mistakes we made uh, for forever. Uh, so I, I don't know what point Anna Sarwar is seeking uh, to prove here. I uh, have taken responsibility and will continue to take responsibility. I have done my level best every single day of this pandemic to get the decisions right. If I could turn the clock back, would we go into lockdown uh, earlier than we did? Uh, yes, I think that is true. Uh, we did uh, move on mass gatherings slightly before the UK government. We announced the position on schools slightly before the UK government. Uh, when you look at the different pandemic curves, although we went into lockdown on the same day as the rest of the UK, it was slightly ahead of uh, the pandemic curve for Scotland. But if I could turn the clock back, there's many things um, I would love to have the opportunity to do differently. Of course, the irony now uh, from many of the same people who criticise me, perfectly legitimately, for not acting quickly enough or for being uh, not cautious enough at an earlier stage are the same people who often criticise me now for being too cautious and for going too slowly in lifting lockdown restrictions. You know, that is what comes with the, the responsibilities of this job. I'm not complaining about that. Uh, but this is not an easy situation for anybody to be in. I will continue, as I've done from day one, to take the best decisions I can, and I will never shy away from the responsibility for that. Anna Sarwar. I'm not sure why the First Minister is critical of a development of a timeline. I would hope, given the scale of the civil service, there would be a Scottish Government timeline about decision-making so we can learn from mistakes and so we don't repeat those mistakes again. Large events matter because on the day we had 47,000 fans in Glasgow, Ireland was announcing an end to large gatherings. Herd immunity matters because New Zealand took a very different approach and had very different outcomes. And this Edinburgh University study has shown that if Scotland had acted earlier, we could have prevented 2,000 COVID deaths. I think these are really important points that we should be bringing to the Chamber and asking for a response uh, from Scotland's government. So I gave three examples of decisions made in Scotland around strategy, around mass gatherings and around care homes. I could have given more. A failure to have adequate PPE supplies, a failure to adequately ramp up testing, a failure to introduce strict testing and quarantine at our airports, and an ineffective contract tracing. NHS and social care staff and the Scottish people deserve more than just rhetoric. They deserve answers. They deserve being more than being told that the government cares. They deserve answers. Because we can't allow Scottish exceptionalism to stop us from learning critical lessons. It's always easier to focus on failures elsewhere. Question, we must learn please. from mistakes Question, here at please. home. So we don't need to wait for the UK government. Work can begin right now to establish a judge-led Scottish-specific public inquiry on the decisions made in Scotland. Surely, after everything the First Minister has just said in those answers, she agrees. First Minister. Um, look, I, I, you know, people can make up their own minds whether they're hearing from me um, an inability to face up to mistakes or Scottish exceptionalism. I think what they're hearing from me is a, a candid uh, admission that we would not, like uh, many other governments across the world, have got everything right and a willingness, not just a willingness, a desire to face up to that and learn from that. I could paper the walls with bits of papers and timelines, uh, but actually my focus right now is, as First Minister is getting the vaccination programme uh, delivered to keep people safe in the future to make sure that we're taking the right decisions criticised by many for being too cautious and too slow to keep people safe as we could be in uh, the foothills of a third wave of this virus. So that's my, not just my focus, that's my responsibility as First Minister. Uh, but of course we have lessons to learn uh, and I've never said otherwise. Perhaps Anna Sarr was standing here and saying that if he'd been standing here back then, he would have got everything right. And who knows, maybe he would have done. But I suspect, just like everybody else, he would have grappled with these difficult decisions. And lastly, on the issue of a judge-led public inquiry, I've given that commitment. That commitment stands. I want to see that up and running before the end of this year. Uh, the UK government has announced plans for a public inquiry and have asked for four nations' discussion about remit and where there might be overlaps. And usually, uh, from uh, the benches here and the Labour benches here, I'm being encouraged to take part in constructive four nations' discussions. So we've agreed to do that. But the commitment to a public inquiry is there, it is firm and it is strong. And I think I was the first of the First Ministers across the UK to give that commitment. Uh, I, having led this country uh, to the best of my ability, far from perfectly, 
through this pandemic. Uh, I want, uh, as much as anybody wants, to make sure that we learn the right lessons. Uh, it is very easy, and you know, if I was in opposition, no doubt I'd be doing the same. It's very easy when you're not the one taking the decisions. And when you have the benefit of hindsight to tell us what we should have done. Uh, but when you're taking these decisions in the moment, you have to act and you have to act on the basis of the best information and advice you have. And that is what we have done. We will learn lessons. Uh, we will be judged. We've just been judged uh, on our uh, leadership of this so far in an election. And we will be judged with the fullest possible scrutiny. But right now, my focus is on continuing to lead this country as best I can through an ongoing pandemic. As you know, the Greens increased their representation here in Holyrood at the last month's election. Here's co-leader Lorna Slater. Now, will she attempt a little speech or go straight to questions? That's right, she has to be prodded in the direction of asking a question. Before I move on to question three, I'm very eager that we involve as many members as possible in First Minister's questions, and I would be most grateful for succinct questions and more succinct responses. Thank you, and I call question number three, Lorna Slater. Today the First Minister will attend the UK Recovery Summit and I welcome that she will be asking for furlough to be extended. This is essential for Scottish workers, but we need so much more. The TUC published analysis this week of public spending on the green recovery and job creation in the G7 countries. Predictably, the UK is far behind, with Germany investing three times more per person and France four times more. Failure to invest in a green recovery would be a disaster for our planet and for our economy, as businesses and workers are held back by Tory austerity while our European neighbours race ahead. Yesterday, Parliament voted in favour of my call for a major increase in public investment in Scotland and across the UK to secure a green economic recovery. Can the First Minister assure us that she will make this demand at the Recovery Summit later today? First Minister. Uh, yes, I will. Um, obviously, within the Scottish Government's own uh, resources, we are maximising our investment in the actions needed to support a green recovery and indeed transition to net zero. We've also, of course, uh, in the last session of Parliament, established the Scottish National Investment Bank, which has uh, that transition as its primary uh, mission. So we continue, and we should continue to be challenged to do everything we can within the powers and responsibilities and resources that we have. But there's no doubt, and this is not my choice, but uh, much of uh, what we are able to do in terms of spending uh, is determined by the spending decisions uh, of the UK government. So this afternoon, as well as uh, asking to ensure that we can continue to, to lead through uh, this pandemic with public health absolutely at the fore, that furlough is uh, extended for as long as necessary, but also that there are commitments given on public spending so that we have certainty and clarity about public spending for the future and clarity that we're not going to see austerity cuts uh, imposed by the UK government. That's important for green recovery, but that's important for so many other reasons as well. Lorna Slater. I share the doubts that the UK government will deliver, but this could not be more important. I hope the First Minister will keep demanding the investment we need, working in partnership with the other devolved countries, just as the Scottish government did to secure an extension to furlough last year. But there is still more we can do here in Scotland with the powers that we have to secure a green recovery. Look at the industry I come from, as noted in my Register of Interests. Scotland could be a world leader in marine renewable energy, but the industry was undermined by the Tory government when they scrapped essential tariff support in 2015. The Scottish government have long committed to a public energy company which could provide the tidal energy with Question, the demand please. that it needs. Tidal energy technology was developed in Scotland. We're the world experts, but if we don't act now, we will lose this industry to other countries. First Minister, when will you deliver a public energy company? First Minister. Well, we'll take forward uh, a, a range of different ways in which we are going to support the vast renewable energy potential uh, that uh, Scotland has. And Lorna Slater is absolutely right to point that out. And indeed, I hope these are issues that will feature in the discussions we have about the cooperation between our parties uh, over the course of this Parliament. Scotland is a world leader in renewable energy, but there is much more we need to do, both in terms of the generation of the energy, but also in making sure that we properly seize the economic benefits that come from that. That's uh, one of the areas where, candidly, we haven't yet done well enough. So there's lots of work uh, to be done here. Uh, we are 
determined to get on with that as we uh, lead up to COP and then beyond uh, COP. And I very much look forward to working uh, with the Greens and indeed with others across this chamber to make sure that Scotland uh, continues to lead the world in renewable energy, but also on that wider transition to net zero. St Johnston. Thank you. Question number four, Siobhan Brown. Thank you, Presiding Officer. And can I congratulate you on your new role? Can I ask the First Minister what engagement the Scottish Government has had with the UK Government regarding the extension of the deadline for application for the EU Settlement Scheme? First Minister. Uh, can I uh, take the opportunity to welcome uh, Siobhan Brown uh, to the Chamber and congratulate her on her first question. Uh, we have been very consistent in calling for the EU Settlement Scheme to be replaced by a declaratory system which would alleviate the risks of EU citizens becoming unlawfully resident here. Uh, in my view, EU citizens simply should not have to apply to retain their rights. Uh, due to the pandemic, many people have struggled to obtain identity documents or retrieve required evidence, and we know many have yet to apply uh, that there's also a backlog in processing applications. So we'll continue to do all we can to support EU citizens. Uh, the Minister for Culture, Europe and International Development has already raised the issue with the UK Government on more than one occasion. Um, but let me put this simply. Uh, the UK government, I hope, has learned the lessons uh, from the Windrush scandal, and it must make sure it does everything to avoid uh, repeating that scandal. Uh, and part of that must be extending the June the 30th deadline. Siobhan Brown. I thank the First Minister for that answer. There are grave concerns that some EU citizens, such as the elderly or infirm and children in care and foster homes, will fail to apply for settled status by June the 30th deadline because they're either incapable of doing so or their guardians are unaware of a deadline at all. Can the First Minister advise how the Scottish Government, together with local authorities, has worked with local care homes and children's care services to prevent any potential miscarriages of natural justice over this issue, especially given the life-changing consequences that missing the deadline can have? First Minister. Well, this is such an important question, and it potentially impacts on the lives of many people across the country. The government has worked really closely with local authorities and care providers uh, to increase awareness of the settlement scheme. Uh, this has included funding a caseworker at COSLA to assist vulnerable people who have contact with local authorities. Uh, there's been a particular focus on identifying and supporting looked-after children. In addition, uh, Citizens Advice Scotland uh, have written to care homes to alert them to the upcoming deadline. Uh, the Stay in Scotland marketing campaign has also restarted, uh, as well as using social media. The campaign uses radio and local press to reach people who might not be online. Uh, we will provide support and information, but it is really vital that we also continue to press the UK Government to make changes to the scheme that are so important to safeguard the rights of EU citizens here. Thank you. Question number five, Oliver Mundell. Thank you, Presiding Officer. To ask the First Minister what steps the Scottish Government is taking to ensure there are sufficient resources in place to prevent schools from exceeding maximum class size limits during the next academic year, in light of reports that a number of schools are currently exceeding these limits. First Minister. Well, we're obviously determined to do everything we can to ensure schools have the resources they need, but it's important, first of all, to note that the law here um, is clear. Other than in very specific circumstances, class sizes are mandatory and must be adhered to. Uh, on resources, last year teacher numbers increased for the fifth year in a row. Uh, there are now more teachers than at any time since 2008. The ratio of pupils to teachers is at its lowest since 2010. Uh, we've provided since the start of the pandemic over £200 million uh, to councils, uh, which has supported the recruitment of 1,400 additional teachers and over 200 support staff. And of course, over the first 100 days of this Term, uh, we will fund councils to increase teacher numbers uh, by a further 1,000. And that's, of course, part of our commitment to 3,500 uh, additional uh, teachers uh, and classroom assistants over the parliamentary term. Um, and, of course, that's over and above uh, those recruited during the pandemic so far. Oliver Mundell. Thank you uh, for that answer. But let's talk about reality, not ratios. While the First Minister seeks to manipulate the figures by including those whose main job is supporting classroom teachers, schools across the country are left with no choice but to cram extra young people into classrooms, going against everything the SNP used to promise. How does the First Minister explain reports suggesting that numerous schools have over 30 primary school children in a class at a time while the attainment gap widens? With qualified teachers across Scotland currently looking for teaching posts, why won't the First Minister move faster in reversing teaching cuts and guarantee that this will be the last year we see our young people so badly let down? Yeah. First Minister. Um, teacher numbers have increased uh, for five 
years in a row, um, and the commitment to continue to increase teacher numbers uh, is there. Um, on the issue of class sizes, though, I, I was uh, talking about teachers and classroom assistants in terms of the numbers of teachers and classroom assistants we were recruiting. Uh, but the point I was making on class sizes is is a clear one. Uh, class sizes are mandatory. So primary one to three class sizes are actually set in statute. Um, and class sizes for primary four to seven, including composite classes, are part of the terms and conditions of the Scottish Negotiating Committee for teachers. Uh, so councils have a duty, um, a legal duty in many cases, to make sure uh, that those limits are adhered to. Uh, so we will continue to work hard. Often uh, over the past years, uh, we've worked hard to deliver this in the face of the austerity cuts that have been imposed on this government by the Conservatives at Westminster. So we will continue to work hard to ensure there are more teachers in our schools and that we support councils uh, to deliver the education that children and their parents want and deserve. Question number six, Neil Bibby. Thank you, President Officer. To ask the First Minister whether the Scottish Government will consider issuing a formal apology to the historic victims of forced adoption. First Minister. Uh, yes, we will consider that. Um, like everybody else, I feel deep sadness uh, that in the past women were forced to give their children up for adoption uh, due to the prevailing uh, moral and social attitudes of, of the time. Major shifts have occurred in adoption policy and practice, and that ensures a focus is now placed on providing secure permanent relationships for uh, some of uh, our most under-supported children. Uh, we're engaging with the campaigners calling for an apology so that we can better understand their experiences uh, in order that we can then consider the issue more fully. And I give the commitment that we are and will continue to do that. Uh, we have come a long way in recent years in improving outcomes for looked after children and young people, but I know there is still much more to do, which is why uh, I uh, and the government have committed to implementing the findings of the promise to ensure that all looked after children grow up safe, happy and loved. Neil Bibby. I thank the First Minister for her response. My constituent, Mary McMillan, was one of 60,000 Scottish mothers compelled to give up a baby for adoption simply because they were unmarried. What they went through was horrific, and many have experienced a lifetime of grief and pain. Marion has worked with victims of forced adoption from around the world, reunited mothers with children, and given evidence that helped secure the world's first government apology for forced adoption in Australia in 2013. Yet there has never been a formal apology for the injustice of forced adoption here in Scotland and the UK. Marion is now in her 70s. She is terminally ill. Her dying wish is that the victims of Scotland receive the apology they deserve and that it happens soon. Can I therefore urge the First Minister to take swift action to confront this shameful chapter in Scotland's history and deliver as soon as possible a formal statement to Parliament issuing a government apology for forced adoptions on behalf of our entire nation? First Minister. Um, Yes, I, I will give that commitment. I mean, I, I do take this really seriously, but uh, I hope Neil Bibby, and I'm sure he will, uh, also accept that it's important that if we're doing something like this, we get it right um, and that we listen uh, to those who understandably are calling for an apology. I've also read uh, Marion McMillan's uh, experience, and it is absolutely heartbreaking, and it's not uh, isolated and unique. Uh, that happened to too many women uh, back in days when attitudes were very different uh, to those that prevail today. Um, I don't know all of the detail of this, but I, I know in uh, the Republic of Ireland, for example, there was a concern that uh, work around this did not deliver uh, what campaigners had been calling for. So it's really important that we understand uh, what uh, an apology uh, would seek to cover, uh, how that can be framed in a way that gives the campaigners uh, the closure, uh, if that uh, is an appropriate word, uh, that they are looking for. So I'm you're very, very committed to considering this properly and fully, to doing it quickly, but to do, doing it in a way uh, that delivers what the campaigners actually feel uh, is important to them. Thank you. Question number seven, Liam MacArthur. Thank you very much. Uh, to ask the First Minister what the Scottish Government's response is to a recent survey stating that 29% of police officers are experiencing moderate burnout and a further 16% are enduring high levels. First Minister. Well, I, uh, as I'm sure we all do, appreciate the hard work and dedication of our police officers and indeed uh, police support staff at all times, but especially throughout the pandemic. Um, I support the initiatives being undertaken by the Chief Constable to ensure that officers and staff are physically and mentally healthy. That includes, for example, the introduction of wellbeing champions and a wellbeing hub uh, to raise awareness of the support available. In addition, Police Scotland were one of the first police services in the UK to implement mental health and suicide intervention training for all officers. 
Officers and staff are doing an excellent job in difficult circumstances, and I welcome the fact that Police Scotland provides their workforce with a range of services to help them uh, look after their mental and physical health. Liam MacArthur. Thank you. When we highlighted devastating research 18 months ago, ministers told us they were very satisfied with the mental health support available for officers. Now experts, uh, researchers have con again concluded many frontline officers are suffering from chronic stress associated with their circumstances at work. Police Scotland were co-sponsors of this long-term research, but I have learned that support was withdrawn because the research programme was keen to understand the impact of COVID on the, on the workforce, but Police Scotland said it was, quote, too soon and so withdrew support. Does the First Minister accept that Scotland's police officers have been badly let down and they don't have the mental health support that they so obviously need? First Minister. I think the Chief Constable and the Government have a duty to listen and to respond, and, and we, we take that very seriously. Liam MacArthur talks about 18 months ago, which of course predates COVID, which has exacerbated the stress and the anxiety and the trauma of many of our public service workers, including uh, the police and their support staff. Uh, there is a range of support services in place. Um, I mentioned uh, some of them in my initial answer. Uh, and it's really important that the Chief Constable, and this is uh, a matter for the Chief Constable first and foremost, continues to listen to the experiences uh, of uh, the police service and uh, deliver that support to make sure that in the very challenging work that they do, our police officers have the support to keep themselves mentally uh, and physically healthy. So that work will continue um, and I fully support the efforts uh, that the Chief Constable is undertaking. I'm Ashley Keenan-Brice. You're listening to The Week in Hollywood. Thank you. We'll move on to supplementary questions, and I call Alistair Allen. Last weekend saw major disruption to haulage. Technical issue with MV Hebrid and Isles led to a backlog of lorries, many of which contained perishable goods and had to be left behind. While the return of MV Lock Seaforth to the route should help, this incident does raise wider concerns about what happens when the next Calamac vessel either goes into dry dock or ever suffers a similar breakdown such as the one which has seen off Seaforth out of action for seven weeks. Given all this, will the Scottish Government consider the charter of a freight vessel for the Stormaway to Alphone route? First Minister. Well, firstly, uh, let me say I absolutely recognise and understand uh, the frustration of communities at this and indeed at other recent disruption and the impact that that has had. Um, in relation to the issue with the MV Hebridean Isles, uh, I understand all goods were shipped early uh, Saturday morning on the MV Isle of Lewis. Uh, I can also update the Chamber that the MV Loch Seaforth returned to service on the 31st of May, uh, and as of today, all vessels are now back in position. Transport uh, Minister has met uh, with the member and indeed uh, with constituency, MSPs and other stakeholders to hear uh, concerns and has agreed to continue regular dialogue. Uh, we are actively exploring opportunities for chartering additional uh, tonnage uh, and, in addition, have confirmed new investment in ports and vessels to support and improve Scotland's ferry services over the next five years as part of our wider infrastructure investment plan. Thank you. Jamie Green to be followed by Foisal Chowdhury. Uh, this week, Chief Superintendent Mark Richards said that a marked increase in body-worn ca cameras on police officers will, in his view, see a spike in guilty cases and reduce pressure on our much backlogged criminal courts. But he did warn that financial and structural constraints seem to have prevented their rollout thus far. So can I ask if the First Minister agrees with that assessment of the situation? And are there any imminent plans to increase police protection and speed up the justice process by heeding uh, his recommendation? First Minister. Uh, we will continue to discuss these matters with the Chief Constable. Um, I certainly welcome uh, Police Scotland's ongoing work to consider how new and improved technologies uh, can be harnessed to further strengthen uh, its ability to keep uh, the population uh, safe. We will continue to support that, but also consider uh, the implications of that for police officers them themselves. So it's important that we do uh, take the time to uh, discuss and to consider all of these issues fully. Foisal Chowdhury to be followed by Emma Harper. Thank you, Presiding Officer. Congratulations on your new role. Uh, with the spread of new variant, the need to address low uptake on the COVID-19 vaccine amongst particular ethnic group is crucial, especially for those who may be at higher risk. To do so, the program must be accessible. So can I ask the First Minister, in which translation is information about the vaccine program available and what targeted action is being taken to reach diverse minority group within our communities? First Minister. Um, can I uh, 
well, well, firstly, welcome Faisal Chaudhry to uh, the Chamber uh, today. Um, and can I agree very much uh, with uh, him on the importance of accessibility to the vaccine programme? I will uh, write to him uh, personally, or ask the uh, Health Secretary to do so, to give detail of the various ways, including uh, materials being uh, available in different languages that are being made to ensure uh, high uptake in our minor minority ethnic communities. Uh, I represent a constituency with a, a very high proportion uh, of uh, ethnic minorities uh, living within it. Uh, also a constituency where there has been a significant outbreak of uh, COVID in recent weeks. Uh, some of the work that's been done there around uh, surge testing, but also particularly around approaches to improving uptake of the vaccine, uh, a vaccine clinic, for example, uh, based inside Glasgow Central Mosque uh, is an important part of that. And there is learning that we can take from that to apply to other parts of the country. Uh, overall, uh, uptake of the vaccine is uh, extremely uh, good uh, at the moment, uh, and we need to make sure that that national picture is fully reflected in all of our uh, different communities, because the vaccine really is uh, the most important thing we can do now uh, to guard against this virus uh, and to get the country uh, back to normality. Uh, overall, in Scotland, uh, taking today's figures into account, uh, there's now more than 60% of the total population in Scotland, 60.2%, has had a first dose uh, of uh, the vaccine. And obviously, we are speeding up uh, the administration now of second doses as well. But the points Fawzal Chowdhury has made uh, are important, and we'll continue to take them into account. Emma Harper to be followed by Craig Hoy. To ask the First Minister what her response is to the eight cases of COVID-19 Delta B1617 two variant, formerly known as the Indian variant, which has been identified in NHS to Fries and Galloway Health Board area, which has been described as a variant of concern by the World Health Organisation. First Minister. Uh, the Health Secretary is uh, telling me he spoke to Dumfries and Galloway uh, yesterday. Um, it is important that uh, everybody uh, recognises uh, right now that the new variants uh, are going to uh, unfortunately happen with this virus, uh, but it's really important that we take the same basic steps to contain uh, new variants as we've taken to contain uh, the virus all along. Uh, in respect of the uh, Delta uh, variant, we now think that it uh, represents uh, well over half of all new cases in Scotland. Uh, so we will see that in many different parts of the country, including, uh, of course, NHS Dumfries and Galloway Health Board area. Uh, but the way we we stop this virus spreading is the same for every variant. It's all of the basic measures we know about, hand hygiene, face coverings, distancing, making sure that we're all following the guidance that is in place. And of course, testing regularly. Everybody can access lateral flow tests now and also coming forward for vaccination as soon as you're invited. The vaccination, two doses of the vaccination is the best protection any of us can have against this virus. I'm Ashley Keenan-Brice. You're listening to The Week in Holyrood. Craig Hoy to be followed by Pam Duncan Glancy. Presiding officer, the latest figures for waiting times for child and adolescent mental health services are deeply disturbing. In NHS borders, the average wait for CAMS is 31 weeks, and only 48% of young people are being treated within the 18 week target. In NHS Lothian, the target was missed by over a third. The figures also showed that one in five children are still being turned away from CAMS completely. Three years ago, the Cabinet Secretary for Health described the present system of rejecting referrals as completely unacceptable, yet there has been no improvement. So when is the First Minister and her government going to get a grip of the children's mental health treatment crisis in Scotland today? First Minister. Uh, can I uh, welcome uh, Craig Hoy to... Uh, Parliament. Um, on the issue of uh, mental health waiting times uh, for children and adolescents generally, but also on the issue of rejected referrals, I'll uh, turn to these in reverse order. Uh, the Scottish Government, of course, accepted all of the recommendations in the 2018 audit of rejected referrals, and we are uh, working uh, to deliver on all of those recommendations, uh, including 
uh, asking Public Health Scotland to work with health boards uh, to uh, develop a new patient-level data set so that we don't uh, just understand the overall numbers but the reasons for rejected referrals. There's also uh, the, the standard, uh, the service standard, uh, which makes clear what should happen if a particular referral uh, doesn't require specialist treatment. So there is ongoing work uh, to rightly uh, tackle uh, rejected referrals. On the issue of waiting times more generally, uh, in, in summary, uh, our approach is twofold. Firstly, more investment uh, into uh, CAMs, uh, but secondly, redesigning the service so that there is much uh, greater support provision for young people in communities uh, so that uh, hopefully they don't then require specialist services. Uh, I'm happy to ask the Health Secretary to provide more detail of all of that, uh, given that I have limited time here, but this is an important uh, strand or strands of work uh, that are being taken forward uh, with urgency. Pam Duncan Clancy to be followed by Jackie Dunbar. Thank you, President Officer. To ask the First Minister whether attendees of the Euro 2020 fan zone in Glasgow will require testing for COVID-19 ahead of entry, given conflicting information provided by the Scottish Government and the organisers Glasgow Life. First Minister. Um, I, again, I will write to Pam Duncan Glancy and make this available to the whole chamber of the arrangements uh, that are in place. Um, and these arrangements are still under uh, consideration to make sure that uh, any fan zone uh, proceeds safely with all the correct mitigations in place. On the issue of testing, let me uh, repeat again uh, that not just for people uh, attending a particular event, our advice to the whole population now is to order, you can order them free through the NHS Inform website, lateral flow tests and test yourself twice a week uh, so that if you have the virus without symptoms that can be identified. You can go for a confirmatory PCR test if the LFD test is positive and that helps us break the chains of transmission and it's really important to get that message across to the, the public at large, not simply in relation to particular attendances at particular events. And Jackie Dunbar to be followed by Liam Kerr. First Minister, Scottish communities are to this day paying the price of the scorched earth policy inflicted on Scottish industries in the 1980s by Thatcher and our hypocritical Scots Tories. What assurances can the First Minister provide to my constituents working in the oil and gas sector that no one will be left behind as we make a necessary and just transition to renewable energy? First Minister. Um, can I take the opportunity to welcome uh, my good friend Jackie Dunbar to this chamber? I think she has uh, just demonstrated in that question what a powerful contribution she has going uh, to make here. And uh, I'm not sure the Tories are going to like it, but I think most of the rest of us will. Um, this is a really important issue. I, I grew up in Ayrshire uh, in the 1970s and 80s, and I saw firsthand the impact on communities uh, when a government didn't care um, about protecting individuals and communities uh, from the impact of economic transformations. We must not make that mistake again. Uh, failing to plan uh, for the transition to net zero is not an option. That's why we are working with trade unions, businesses, communities to develop just transition plans to ensure that our approach is a fair one. And that commitment to just transition is uh, really, really vital. I've already appointed our first just transition minister. Uh, we will implement the recommendations of the Just Transition Commission um, and maintain the commission to advise us right throughout this parliament. And um, I believe a majority in this parliament are committed to that transition to net zero. But I also hope a majority are committed to making that transition fairly, because that's in the interest of every individual and community across our country. And Liam Kerr. Thank you, Presiding Officer. In February, I asked the First Minister when there would be a review into oil and gas worker quarantine to avoid them spending, in some cases, 10 out of 14 days and three-quarters of their wages in a hotel on return from work overseas. I received no clear answer. I asked again in March. No clear answer. As travel restrictions ease... Is the First Minister now in a position to give our key energy workers the review they so desperately crave and at least permit these essential workers to isolate at home? First Minister. We'll continue to keep all of these things uh, under review, but my principal obligation, and you know, we've, we've just heard uh, from uh, an earlier part of FMQ's perfectly legitimate uh, questioning and criticism over uh, the, the suggestions that decisions we might have taken at an early stage were not cautious enough. Uh, we need to make sure that first and foremost we are protecting people as much as possible against the spread of this virus and that is particularly important when it comes uh, to international travel because that is the key risk right now of importing new variants. So these are all difficult 
issues uh, for anybody who's having uh, to uh, quarantine in a hotel. It is really difficult. But public safety and public health is paramount here, and I would hope that the Tories uh, would accept that. Thank you. 